This is Small Changes, Stark Reality on jasoncharles.net. party people how the hell are you another episode of stark reality coming your way hosted by myself small change james deer whatever you remember this time uh we roll out the red carpet all the way to berlin for my man dj zhao leo he was born in beijing spent some time in la new york and houston before uh, being in Berlin for a number of years, musicologist, rhythm ambassador, designer, and uh, applies historical materialistic analysis to the evolution of social music and brings a polycultural understanding of rhythm to his deeply percussive cross-genre sets. In this episode of Stark Reality, we talk about why working people should support China and what's going on there. New York experimental DJ scenes in the 90s, 2000s, where we originally met. Declining arts funding and gentrification in Berlin. Growing up in Beijing, anti-communist propaganda in the West. The sort of no-dancing anti-rave laws that were popular a few years back. And we even give Tommy's Burgers in L.A. a quick shout-out. Still don't know what's in their chili. Probably don't want to know. <laughs> Anyways, DJ Zhao is is the man, and he gives us a mix. Uh, also from uh, one of his many mixes on his SoundCloud page called Harder 3. Some jacking styles. Uh, so check out that and more on his SoundCloud page. And this interview, which runs for quite some time. Usual ranting. Hope you enjoy. DJ Zhao on Stark Reality. All right, take two. Da da da. No, here with uh, Leo Zhao. And uh, who has been chilling in Berlin for quite some time, though uh, you we were you were just jogging my memory, saying that we met in New York. I, I you know what's funny is I can't even remember when we met. You <laughs> said you met you, we met through like the Sound Lab people, right? Exactly. It was one of those one probably one of the last Sound Lab parties. I'm not sure. It was around 2003, maybe 2002. I have no idea. But anyway, yeah, I was. <clears throat> you you were wearing this head-to-toe white suit with a white hat and white shoes, and I remember meeting you very, very clearly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah, you, you were know, just put, uh, put, put on some outfits. Why not? You know, have a little fun in this world. Yeah, yeah, pimping. Yeah, um, Sound so, yeah, Lab. I, they did some good parties back in the day, for sure. Great parties. Yeah, those were. That was in the 90s, right? Yeah, I mean like the 90s. 90s into the 2000s, exactly. 
that was such a unique time. You know, it was all this euphoria from the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, you know, this triumphalism. People just uh, in the U.S. thought we will never, you know, be defeated. We are number one. We are king of the universe, right? And there was all this corporate money, all this corporate money that was accrued during the 80s neoliberalism. And they, uh, some of it was funneled into arts funding because these corporations wanted to make themselves look cool, right? Remember all these like experimental music, ambient sound compilations put out by like Virgin and Sony? Yeah, and, uh, I know. I remember like, uh, though this might have been more in the 2000s, but like Scion and Red Bull doing a bunch of stuff, but... Yeah, that too. I think that was a little bit later, but they that there was they were you know some of these corporations were throwing a lot of money at like kind of underground parties for a minute. It was kind of wild. Yeah, it was weird, right? I mean, Raygun magazine, you know, experimental typography, totally you know, uh, avant garde. I mean, yeah, I mean, he, uh, David Carson was copying a lot of other more academic stuff, but anyway, today unthinkable. Right on on the newsstand, right next to uh, whatever time or you know, uh, just I think the '90s was a brief moment where we deluded ourselves into thinking that uh, we were creating a new world based on this you know sort of bubble of the uh, internet bubble was starting. Dot com, right? Right, right. The whole dot com era, which kind of funneled, yeah, a lot of money into, you know, into sort of the when was yeah. when was the first crash? It was kind of the late nineties, right? Yeah, late nineties, two thousand, two thousand one. But, but the lead up to that, there was yeah. like a lot of yeah. I remember a friend of mine was, I think, editing the MTV site, like every you know, they all had to have websites and have content and all that stuff. So, you know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then it just turned out to be, of course, a joke. It was a delusion. It was a, a pipe dream. <laughs> and it all meant nothing. All these warehouse parties, right? All these independent spaces, right? And then, like, all the investment money came in and they were bought up and uh, they became boutiques and uh, apartment houses and, uh, you know, uh, cafes and uh, all this, all these <laughs> warehouses dried up and, um, yeah, yeah then, it's kind, now... it's kind of funny because like yeah, when I first moved, I moved to New York from the West Coast uh, in you know like late '93. So I went to you know a number of parties in Williamsburg when it was kind of like the waterfront was like rubble, you know, like mustard right. factory and I right. mean those parties were dope, you know, like DJ Olive, some of those yeah. guys, and they yeah. would throw like really cool parties. I remember they would throw parties where. They had a gigantic, you know, they had, like, fans and would have, like, you know, it was like a big bubble. So you'd walk yeah. into a bubble and they, you know, they had, like, DJs and they would do a lot of wacky. I mean, it was fun. Yeah, it's kind of hard to, you know, I remember Olive at one point, you know, his friends had access to an East Village storefront that was sort of in between spaces, you know. And so they just set up, you know, like, music and there was nothing in it. Like people would walk in and there was like lights and music was coming from somewhere just to fuck with people. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like some people like wander off the street for like, they had it for like a few weeks or a month. And it's just yes, like, yes. you were, just wouldn't even think so that that would happen in the East Village now. Now the East Village is like yeah, a gap yeah. store or some shit. I don't know. You know, it's kind of crazy. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's exactly what I'm talking about. 
there were so many of these little projects and so many of these little spaces, exactly the same in Berlin, right? Nineties, uh, fall of the wall, and uh, you know there was this brief uh, ten, about ten years of euphoria where the love parade and yeah, love about, parade was like massive, uh, you know, huge, huge. It was this a brief sort of few years of euphoria where it seemed like you know uh, we were creating a new world, and then of course the contradictions of capitalism catches up, and the bubble burst. And then there was a financial crash in 2008. And then here, here we are, the IFD rising. And, and then you guys had Trump. And, you know, it's just. <laughs> yeah, it's quite a world. I mean, as we, we speak now, of course, uh, Gaza is getting bombed yet again. So it's uh, yeah, it's a wonderful world. And uh, it's kind of like. Well, well, it, it, it is, though, because it is. It is. No, I mean, in a serious way, it is, you know. Yeah, yeah. Because there is good people, but yeah, it's just crazy, though. It's it's crazy, but you know, as as bad as things are, I know it's probably even more difficult to see from New York and or from the U.S. Um, but on a global picture, in the bird's eye view of the planet, right, imperialism is receding, and it is not coming back. The power of the U.S. to destroy democracies everywhere in the world, democratically elected socialist governments. They cannot coup them anymore. They cannot, you know, they they can't, they couldn't even destroy Venezuela. Yeah, that's true. And they've been trying. <laughs> they've been trying really, really hard, right? Yeah, they, they had like almost like a real life uh, Call of Duty type video game moment where they sent some dudes and some you know patrol boat and i think like it was a bunch of venezuelan fishermen that discovered them initially yeah. so yeah kudos to maduro yeah, you know what i'm saying it's like it's crazy but they have been trying like it's well i think you know part of it is uh it you know when they see like kind of successful you know socialist communist type of governments that that kind of come about and then, you know, they're providing housing, they're providing health care. I mean, in in a way, like, it does, they can't have that system work, <laughs> you know? No, of course not. Because then it's good, of the game not. is up in their own systems at home, you know? So it's of like, it's course. like that kind of canard, like, it just never worked. Like, yeah, especially if you assassinate all their leaders and sanction their, their countries, you know, and their children are dying because of it, you know? It's like... Yeah, then maybe it won't work. But I mean, what's amazing is even places like Cuba that have been under the thumb of the U.S. empire for years and still managed to like have more doctors per capita than any country on Earth. I mean, it's just so exactly. I mean, you know, yeah, and exactly. it's something that a lot of people say. It's like we will win. And, and I really do believe that. But of course, you know, you have to keep pushing because these guys are going to try to hang on to some like you know, hundreds of years old type of imperialism for as long as they can, you know? Of course, of course. Yes, you're absolutely right. The um, contrast is one, is a very big reason for them to destroy socialist countries because they cannot have successful system that makes them look look bad, right? And this contrasting, like, on a, on a micro level again, um, after the wall fell, right, um, all of the arts funding in West Berlin disappeared in West Berlin, right? In the capitalist part, because when the wall was up, 
they had to prove themselves. They had to look good. They had to be like, oh, we are the ones that care about culture. We are the ones that care about the arts and music and stuff, right? Here in the city, it was amazing. Uh, in, in the, before the 90s, in the 80s, anybody who get up on, on the stage, you make fart sounds or whatever the fuck, and um, you would get 500 Deutschmarks. The arts funding was amazing. But as soon as the wall fell, they had no more reason to keep up appearances anymore. So all of the arts funding went away. But anyway, that's just a little anecdote. That's crazy. Yeah, I was going to ask you in terms of like specifically the, you know, what you've kind of seen in Berlin over the years that you've been there, you know. Yeah, just more gentrification, more and more art spaces uh, dying. I mean, there's probably a hundred or, or more independent spaces that have vanished since I have been here in the last 10 years. That's crazy. Like, um, amazing, amazing spaces that used to have, you know, African uh, artists uh, come from Kenya and uh, Scandinavian uh, avant-garde black metal and like, yeah, Japanese improvised music. Um, yeah, just crazy shit. Amazing, amazing art spaces. One by one, just drop dead. Like, uh, now in, were they kind uh, of the, like helped the, with funding yeah. in the past? Like, why it, or is it like a rising rent? Why why were some of these places closing? Many many many, many, many different factors: rising rent, gentrification, um, investors come in and buy up property and squeeze the artists out, uh, neoliberalism, basically privatization. Um, you know, increasing, increasing and just encroaching uh, wave of neoliberalism and exactly the same thing in London, of course. There's been hundreds of uh, clubs that have closed, um, you know, it's the same thing everywhere, it's everywhere in the capitalist sphere. Right. But in the last 10 years, in the last 20, 30 years, many, many poor countries are becoming much stronger. The entire Eastern Europe bloc, the, the Stan countries, the uh, Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, all of these areas on the border of Soviet Union or former Soviet Union on the border of Russia are becoming more economically strong, as well as uh, Southeast Asia, as well as Africa. There's lots of very, very promising, very, very positive amazing developments and real real developments that's going to last you know decades or centuries even right developing and um independent economic strength developing in these former colonized and former very very impoverished areas of the world and that of course is a big reason for the receding of u.s imperialism of western also eu imperialism right yeah yeah so yeah when when the world becomes more equal when intercontinental inequality is reduced right imperialism no longer has power to to do whatever the hell they want and of course a big factor of this is china china has been massively developing these economies in these very, very poor countries, massively investing, right? And creating, the long-term goal is to create a multipolar world order, which is not exclusively dominated by the West, 
which is more equal, which is more balanced. And here's the important part. Leftists in the imperial core, leftists in the USA and in Europe should support China. Big time. I, I agree like a thousand percent. In fact, I mean, I know that we've kind of like bonded more just because, you know, we're just, you know, especially a lot of your posts on, you know, whatever social media. And that's yeah, part yeah, of the yeah. reason I wanted to reach out to you specifically for this podcast, besides, uh, you know, putting out lots of good music and stuff, which we can talk about. But uh, you definitely know the time. So uh, it's nice to talk to you. And I totally agree. I think like the left in these kind of imperial core, the U.S., et cetera, they just, you know, they, they're kind of weak because they just fall for just, like, typical BS propaganda when you should be supporting China. Like, we're not the yeah, good for, guys. For you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, yeah, we're not the yeah, freaking good guys, you know? I don't, I don't know why that's such a hard concept. I guess they watch, like, you know, I'm, you know, child of the 80s. Like, you watch Red Dawn or these awful movies growing up, and you're like, okay, G.I. Joe or some shit. But it's like, dude, at some point you have to grow the fuck up and realize, no, that's not it. We're you know it's like we're the death star you know like get it get a grip man (laughs) i don't know yeah four generations of anti-communist propaganda and then built on top of uh uh, uh, just basic racism and basic racism and basic racism yeah for sure most importantly most importantly i want to give a concrete reason of why the rise of china is good for the working class in the usa and in Europe as well. And the reason is when China rises, China has been the factory of the world, right? For the last 40 years. When China rises and uh, the workers in China get paid more, the capitalists in the USA will no longer be able to export jobs to China so easily. So the workers in the rich European imperialist US American economies will have to listen to the demands of their workers. When the workers say, we want better pay, we want better conditions, the capitalists will have to listen to them and and meet them because they can no longer just say like, well, fuck off, we're just going to put you know, to put your job in, in China or in Africa or in Southeast Asia. Right? Yeah. yeah. So, like, materially, it's literally good for working Americans, like working class Americans who have jobs, who, you know, who work for a living. It's literally good for them that China is rising. And that and Africa is rising. And China is helping Africa rise. And is helping Southeast Asia rise and the the stand countries in Eastern Europe. But what about Chinese imperialism? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean it's just it is crazy, and I you know you you kind of like uh, you see just how we are trying to be sold on this kind of alternative reality, you know that uh, it's evil and they're controlling things and stuff like that. And it's just it's all projection. Yeah. You know, because because what does the U.S. offer like, you know, the World Bank and some crazy austerity measures and, you know, you're basically trapping these countries into debt so that then they'll privatize everything. And it's, 
you know, it's not even a comparison. Besides all the, just the history of uh, general imperialism and, you know, funding death yeah. squads and all kinds of shit, you know. But, uh, you exactly. know, I, I think, you know, obviously with China rising and, and you see it as the propaganda gets more and more desperate. And uh, it's kind of like yeah. for me, it's crazy that adults fall for this shit because it just seems yeah. like some of it is so cartoonish, you know. I noticed in oh, one yeah. of your, um, you you've written like some various uh, articles on music and and politics, and it's funny. I think one of the ones that was from like the mid two thousands, you were mentioning different kinds of dance, you know, around the world, and kind of getting into the history of dance and even the politics of it. And uh, mm -hmm. you mentioned like the Uyghurs, and so it's kind of funny that like that was kind of before. Now it's such a buzzword because they really yeah. just trying to sell people on a genocide that is not ha based on what one Christian fascist, you know, like Adrian yeah. Sands or whatever. And, a genocide uh, that has that has no bodies, that has no cemeteries, that has no refugees, not a single fucking refugee from Xinjiang. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's, it's it's just insane. But then you know, again, because it it sort of aligns with State Department narratives then anybody can just make up something and it gets traction in mainstream media. And I think that's one of the things that's kind of keeping people brainwashed, I think, in the West, is that they still trust the media. And I have just no, I no idea why. I mean, I understand it like it looks slick, like maybe the New York Times hires writers that, you know, can write in a seemingly intelligent way, but it's like you read what they're printing and you're like, come fucking on. Have you guys ever like <laughs> seen a street yeah. hustle or just classic cons? It's like used car salesman shit. I mean, they were even saying that I think one of the recent headlines from Radio Free Asia, you know, like those kind of CIA cutouts is like Voice of America type cutouts was like yeah. saying like, you know, they're forcing the people, the Uyghurs to dance in Xinjiang, you know, yeah. it's just like, it's like, oh, my God, like you can't even you can't even say that they're destroying the cultures. Now you're saying, well, they're forcing them to dance so that they'll look good. You know, it's just like, holy shit, man, this stuff is desperate, desperate. You know? Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. It's crazy. It's crazy. On, on the one hand, on the one hand, you know, people do realize that six corporations own all of Western media. Right. Rupert, Rupert Murdoch, uh, Bill Gates, or uh, I don't know who the Yeah, six... I think Disney owns ABC, and then Bezos owns the Washington Post. And uh... yeah, on one hand, people know know this, and then uh, they sort of pretend that they don't know this and just believe everything that uh, <laughs> that mainstream media tells them. Yeah, I mean that's something I mean... that comes up on Twitter quite a bit. Is just you know the sort of activists and whatever communists and etc that i follow they're just always ripping on the western left but for good reason it's like why do you guys like even dsa and some of these organizations that are socialists but then you know you look at jacobin every once in a while and they'll roll some like anti-china article and it's like what the fuck why are you even running this it just makes the whole thing incredibly suspect you know democracy now you know, very good on other things. I mean, all of these uh, lefty, progressive, you know, publications in the U.S. as well as Europe, they're all good on the domestic matters, but absolutely toe the ideological line in terms of imperialism. 
Yeah, Democracy Now! is It was really sad. Obviously, I've been following them for a long time, and I know Amy Goodman's yeah. been in the game forever. But then you got to, like, you know, like Aaron Mate and some of the people at Grey Zone have been rightly calling them out. I mean, I think Aaron Mate used to work for them, but it's like their coverage on Syria was deplorable. And they had yeah. Adri- they had freaking Adrian Zentz. There's like a Democracy <laughs> Now still. I mean, I, I didn't watch it, but it's like Adrian Zentz with the Democracy Now logo. And I'm like, come fucking on. This guy's like a Christian fascist that like basically, you know, he's part of the Victims of Communism Foundation, which is essentially yeah. like a John Birch type, just yeah. extreme right wing. So why would Democracy Now have somebody like that on there? I just don't. There's just nothing to get about that, you know? Well, it's because imperialism is the bottom line. It's because, you know, you can be, you can be anti-capitalist all you want. Anti-capitalism is attractive. It's uh, exciting. It's uh, entertaining. But pro-socialism is absolutely forbidden. And, of course, imperialism is the bottom line. That is, that is... Imperialism is the primary contradiction, and capitalism is actually a second. Capitalism uh, depends on imperialism, depends on the um, the suppression of independent economic development in large parts of the world to keep prices low, to keep uh, extraction of resources uh, possible for the Western multinational corporations. Yeah, what was uh, that, 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 that Walter Rodney backbone. book, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The how Europe, yeah, how you're... How Hitman, you're, Hitman. No, 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 I think he was like how Europe uh, underdeveloped uh, Africa. Oh, I mean, you that, know, in terms of like just historical, but it just kind of continues. I feel like capitalism has to keep expanding and therefore it has to keep like, you know, going beyond the borders. And, and then that is imperialism in a sense, is that just keeping the capitalist machine running in a sense. Yeah. Yeah, that has always been that has always been the backbone of capitalism, the pure extraction and exploitation of the third world. Um, it wouldn't exist w- without it, you know. I mean, France has uh, like something like three hundred thousand tons of gold in their reserves, and not a single gold mine. Mali has uh, something like eight thousand gold mines. And z- like no gold at all. They have no reserves <laughs> in Mali. Like that's crazy. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, they've been they've been doing the same thing all over the world, right? Yugoslavia, uh, Congo, uh, Chile, just assassinating uh, democratically elected socialist leaders and putting in neoliberal fascist fucking uh, goons, right, in their place. And the thing is, this is what keeps the American economy afloat. This is what, um, this is what, this is the backbone of the entire economy. I mean, ever since the slavery days, um, it, it is a form of economy that extracts, and that's it. And, and the people, the 1% of the top get fatter and fatter and fatter and fatter, and the, everybody else, is, you know, um, life is improved a little bit by it as well, right? Living conditions in the U.S. has been pretty fucking good so after the war, after 45, until the 80s, until the 90s, or even even 2000, 
And people, and now, people, and people have argued that part of the reason the living conditions got better is because, again, the fear of uh, like arriving Soviet kind of communism. So it's almost like, all right, let's give some people some basic yeah, things exactly. so that yeah. again they won't. Yeah. It's sort of like mitigating the machine, you know. And it's something yeah. I'd never even really thought of, but you know, it's obviously just the way we're talking about it. That imperialism and capitalism, it's sort of like, it's sort of like a, a pyramid scheme in a way. You know, it because is. it's a pyramid scheme towards the West, essentially, and towards rich people in the West. And everyone else the gets screwed of- to different degrees. But especially if you're poor in a global South country, you're you're super screwed. And I think they kind of try to keep, you know, populations, you know, in their own bases, sort of placated. But it's also not easy too. you know, obviously there's tons yeah. of homeless people and you know, a lot of suffering, but, you know, it's even worse in these other countries, which conveniently the media never really covers in a way. Like, I mean, look at all the stuff going on in Haiti and it barely got covered in the, in the media, yeah. you know? Yeah, of course, of course. Um, but the point that I was arriving at was that this is the reason why Western leftists, even, even Western leftists choose to, told the imperialist ideological line even amy goodman even democracy now even the guardian in london well the guardian is you know but yeah i would say democracy now is better i mean the guardian is probably the the best of corporate media in terms of is left but it's still very center-right and they still run terrible terrible articles you know yeah 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 yeah. i don't i don't mean to equate those at all i just mean the mainstream liberal shit right you you kind of expect but but even the leftist voices right i mean on some level it's not naivete oh it isn't it's no longer it's no longer naivete. it is literal class allegiance with imperialism on a subconscious level, I'm not saying that Amy Goodman her, herself is like pro-imperialism, pro-war, but like on a on a not even subconscious, on a structural level, right? These all of these publications, the, who pays their paycheck? I mean, you know, there's there's like no way to be, be against the bottom line of your of the economic structure of which you you are a part. Yeah, it just becomes like the problem with the West is they're blinded by this kind of Western centric kind of and it's almost like the kind of uh, what, you know, what these cornballs call like the clash of civilizations, you know, the the (laughs) Orient versus the Occident or whatever, where it's like the people in the global south or whatever, different people, they're always that kind of other, you know, and so it's always kind of centered from this Western perspective, but it's like. Okay, if your perspective is say something like you know Zionism or Manifest Destiny at its roots, then maybe that isn't the perspective. Like I don't know. I feel yeah. like you should be listening to other voices, and, and you know, like I yeah. think like the Western left could take a lot of notes from people in the global South, you know, as opposed to always trying to kind of put their sort of uh, perspective on it. And it's kind of like the perspective is very very tainted, you know. I mean, yeah, totally. I, you know, I I feel like it's like it's an unraveling. You know, I'm constantly trying to educate myself because, of course, I grew up, as you said, with these decades of anti-communism and all kinds of stuff. So it's like for me, that's the perspective is to try and keep, you know, to bust out of that perspective instead of saying, well, I'm from the West. And, you know, since we run the world, we know what we're doing. It's like, 
yeah, what kind of world is it? It's kind of shitty. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, there's yeah, lots of yeah. good people, but I mean, like I said, I mean, and you could, you know, it's like even the concept of like sort of focusing on electoral politics and it's like vote blue and it's like, you know, why should we vote blue? So then Joe Biden or, or Anthony Blinken can sound exactly like Mike Pompeo and, you know, while children are being bombed in Gaza, it's just, you know, jump out of that perspective, you know, I don't know. There was a great quote about the clash of civilizations. I forget who said it. It could be me. You know how sometimes you have a quote in your head, but you don't, it could be yourself. But anyway, it's um, a clash of civilizations is only possible if one of them keeps mistaking clashing for civilization. Right. That's good. <laughs> I like that. I, I like that one. <laughs> yeah and then but you yeah, know it's kind of funny like the clash of civilizations when they're like kind of dis- let me just say one oh, thing yeah, no, sorry know, sorry sorry in terms, of, in terms of china right uh there's 90 million uh members in the chinese communist party and xi jinping the president his uh first nine applications to join the communist party were declined were rejected Right. And this this is an organization that takes only the best of the best of the best people. You have to be you have to have obviously perfect academic record. You have to have like extremely high scores. You have to have, you know, uh, in every level of life, be like supremely excellent to join this party. Now, the um, education system in China Marxism is required curriculum from high school onwards. Uh, we, there's uh, Marxism in, in university and, uh, and on, of course, onwards. The collapse of the Soviet Union is its own uh, academic field of research, a field of uh, inquiry. You can like major in the collapse of the Soviet Union. That's wild. Like, yeah, like we we study this shit like very, very fucking seriously on a nationwide level education system. You know, every fucking high school teaches Marxism, uh, so the scientific understanding of the world of, of economics and politics. But anyway, so this is a party that it has 90 million members. Right. And this is a communist party that liberated a country, what, uh, the most populous country in the world liberated from colonialism, defeated colonial armies from Japan, from England, from Germany, from the US, right? <laughs> and this is a, a communist party that has rebuilt the country. When I was a child 40 years ago in Beijing, I remember going outside to take a crap in a hole in the ground during winters colder than Berlin, colder than New York City. We had no indoor plumbing. Even though I was in Beijing, in the heart of Beijing, and in a relatively elite family, relatively privileged family, we had no indoor plumbing. Our first refrigerator was 1983 or four. That's 1984. wild. That's wild. Our first television set, a tiny little black and white television set, was around 1985. 
I was so proud. I was uh, maybe, uh, how old was I? I was like 10, 9 or 10. I was so proud, like, woohoo, we have a television. <laughs> and I remember, you know, people in the neighborhood, 30, 40 people huddled together at night, uh, huddled together to on sitting on these chairs to watch a tiny little television in the corner. So this is a communist party that has, <laughs> that has uh, led China through, like, the most devastating period um, of the 20th century, life expectancy was 35 in China until that, the 70s. That's insane. Until yeah. 1970, yes. Um, when, China, when China was, uh, you know, when, when the Communist Party freed China, uh, illiteracy was 90, 90s, uh, 98% or something like that. Like almost no one could read. Um, and life expectancy was 35, and 20 years later, by 1970, almost the entire country could read, and uh, life expectancy had doubled to 70 by, by 1970. So anyway, so this, this is the Chinese Communist Party, right? But according to the Western left, according to German and English and French and U.S. American communists, this is a party that is all either stupid or lying. They're not doing real socialism. That's they're not. You know, it's it's fake. They're just they don't know what the fuck they're doing. I mean, it's just funny when like when when Western leftists are like they're not real socialists. It's like motherfucker, where do you live? They elected like, Donald Trump. Like, like maybe like clean up your own motherfucking backyard. Holy shit. Yeah. Christ. Yeah, what have you done? Christ. What have you like that? And, and like, yeah, well, I was gonna say, like, you know, I think, like, you know, America doesn't like when poor countries start teaching their people when to read. That's when it's like we gotta <laughs> bomb them a asap. They're they're reading. That's not good. And and that's the thing is that, uh, yeah, they they elevated like a bunch of people out of poverty. I mean, that's massive. And meanwhile, it seems like we slide in the other direction, as you know things get more and more like split between the 1% or 0.1%, you know, three people yeah. owning like as much as like half of the Americans, you know, and yeah, uh, yeah. they're all on Epstein's plane, you know, logs at some point. I mean, they're not good people. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? It's like, yeah. and so I, I do think it's kind of funny when people are like pointing fingers at China and it, it, it to me, it's like kind of the ultimate shit, which is, you know, the oldest game of, of, in the book, which is projection. You just accuse other people of what you're doing. And then, you know, it's like, it just works. I don't know why it still keeps working on people, but it works projection. And, and a lot of stuff that, you know, they accuse China of, it's like we are actually doing in the West. I mean, I think there was, uh, and it's just the gall of it. Like there was uh, an article, I think on the Hill where, again, it's just quoting the U.S., but again, it's almost like, okay, you guys really are stenographers. Are you even going to like follow up on this stuff? And the headline was like, U.S. calls Xinjiang like uh, the world's you know, a world's open, open air prison, you know, which is just, it's kind of sick because that is like what Gaza is in reality, you know, yeah. but they won't even yeah. call it that, but then, you know, they'll make up something and it's just, it's complete and utter projection. It's just projection. Yeah. It's crazy. 
Like, you guys don't care about genocides. You're making up things because you're paranoid that China's on the rise and your empire is in decline. That's really what's going on, you know? Yeah. Yeah, just a word on the poverty alleviation. I think this is really important. Um, uh, PBS actually finished a documentary film on the poverty alleviation program in China uh, that took 15 or 20 years and lifted 900,000 people, almost a billion, out of out of poverty. Um, just a little bit, um, they didn't just throw money at these poor places, right? Um, uh, 30 million, 30 million um, members of the Communist Party were sent to the rural, poor, very, very poor villages to live for like a decade or more and uh, to, to experience the life uh, in these extremely underdeveloped and impoverished areas. And um, they, from living ex experience, they devised plans of how to integrate local economies uh, with each other, of how to um, integrate local economies with a, uh, with a larger national economy and devising like specific infrastructure that each place needs uh, with their specific, you know, unique uh, needs that are different from other provinces. And, um, yeah, it's just a process that, that took 15 to 20 years and a resounding success all over the entire country. People that have never had running water, people that have to walk for two hours a day to get water every day, right? Um, people that who, who live in uh, houses that have no roof or like the roof leaks rain, uh, you know, a billion of such incredibly impoverished people are now living in modern apartments or you know uh, and have uh, very nice uh, jobs uh, uh, with the internet a lot of um, new, even small... able, able to get educated too right yes absolutely built schools I mean that's huge they, they built who knows how many hundreds of thousands of schools um, or tens of thousands of schools and hospitals, uh, healthcare, um, yeah, it's it's just a massive, massive fucking undertaking. And um, the PBS documentary that was made about this uh, will never be shown on U.S. American t television because some congressman said that it was uh, communist propaganda. Yeah, it's twist it's twisted. It really is deep. The whole kind of like anti-communist propaganda and just the controlling, it's very deep, you know. I mean, that's yeah. where I think even just stuff where people, you know, because we kind of segued from Russiagate into, you know, China, you know. It's like, and again, it's like when they keep kind of throwing out these bogeymen with these stories where it's like sources say, again, one would think as adults they'd be a little less gullible. But it's just like always this kind of bogeyman shit. It's just ridiculous, yeah. you know, it and is. I think people are really trained. I mean, you know, I've talked to other people about it where I think like, you know, like my parents or whatever, you know, they're kind of like, 
you know, watching Rachel Maddow, you know. So, I mean, they're generally, they're not like right wing per se. I guess you would say they're just like classic old school liberals, you know. They're not bad people, but it's like yeah. they kind of fall for it because it's just yeah. they're not necessarily on the Internet looking for alternative sources. So, you know, if you just kind of rely on corporate media, you just have this very bizarre look in the world and, and that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I And I feel like any time that there might actually be something that challenges that, it just gets quashed. Like, I mean, I think one of the amazing things about Russiagate is that you know, again, in the in the theme of projection, like we did so much worse to Russia than what we accused them of. Like, like, you know, like these guys like spent like fifty thousand dollars on Facebook ads, you know, <laughs> like some Bernie coloring <laughs> book ads. And they're saying like they changed the election and they, you know. But meanwhile, like, you know, the thing that's really crazy and I had to search for this. I mean, I think Mark Ames has done some stuff is like the whole Yeltsin thing that we basically helped the whole what thing Boris Yeltsin that we helped install oh, right. Boris Yeltsin and kind of torpedo Russia, you know, torpedo yeah, yeah, their yeah. economy like we did that. So in a yeah. sense, if Russia did that to us, we you know, we'd be hearing about it nonstop. But it's like meanwhile, you have to yeah. like search for some like you know, like the Ward Nerd podcast to actually, like, it's hard to actually find that info on Yeltsin. Like, you never, never gets mentioned in corporate media. And it's like, yeah, because course. because we actually did something that was horrific and, and like, you know, and it's the same yeah, thing with China now, too. You know, it's like it just, now it segues because China's on the rise and so they're paranoid, you know? Yeah. But, yeah, they can't, they yeah, can't have absolutely. these countries, like, looking good in any way and 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 what's kind of twisted as you were saying even like democracy now or even people like john oliver you know it's like he will do some like segment on venezuela and it, again it sounds exactly like state department talking points but now put through this kind of liberal comedic lens so it's sort of like i feel like they have different shades of propaganda they obviously have like fox and you know, kind of the center right stuff with CNN. But, you know, this is part of the reason why I think the Western left gets very milquetoast is because they do target the Western left to make sure that, as you said, they're still imperial. You know, you, you know, you might be for universal health care, but, you know, you're still going to believe in the imperial project, which is, you know, yeah. important, you know. But, yeah, that's right. I, I heard about that PBS doc that they they shelved it. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah, just a word about how deep you, you were mentioning how deep uh, the anti-communist propaganda is, right? Just one a small anecdote about the structure of Western education, uh, a, a fundamental change that happened in the late 19th century. Um, in my analysis, this is one of the first responses to Karl Marx, to the work of Karl Marx is that um, before this change, there was one field called political economy. Uh, and it was a, a field of study that encompassed both economics and politics. And after this change, this shift, this education reform, which was carried out systematically throughout the entire uh, European subcontinent and throughout the entire uh, North American continent. Um, this field was split into two, into economics and into 
political science. And that's what we have today. You can either major in, you can either study economics or you can study political science. And the two shall never meet. The two shall never inform each other. And the two should, shall never uh, uh, make the, uh, the other one under, understandable. And my analysis is that this is a response to Marxism because Marxism is the study of how economics and politics are inseparably entwined and how they shape, how they shape human experience, how they shape culture and religion and uh, politics and everything is economics, is, is, uh, is uh, how we produce and distribute and, uh, you know, these matters. So, like, that is, in my view, like, the, the first anti-communist uh, thing that happened in, in, the, in the capitalist countries, to prevent people from understanding why the world is the way it is. Like, that's how deep it is. Yeah, that's deep. That is very deep. Because then the economy, you know, if you're studying, you know, economics, it's probably all based on that capitalism is good and whatever free hand etc 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 it's it's just and i I think that's a a lot of stuff in this world that's a really really good point that it's the framing you know it's like we framed economics to be this sort of you know steady thing like this is economics this is how it works and it's like oh really what what about if there was a system outside that oh no no (laughs) this is the system yeah you know yeah it's the only way people can be can can be made to swallow these lies of neoliberalism like <laughs> that shit right. does not work it's yeah. the only way you can believe that it can work oh maybe it can maybe if we privatize everything and we get rid of you know uh regulations everything is just going to magically like work out that's the only way people can actually believe that shit is when from a, a fundamental you know educational level for generations their parents and their grandparents went to these schools and sort of like had their minds kind of like warped. Yeah. It's a lot of warping. It's a, it's a warped reality. And they, and that's, that's how kind of they use the press and, and education is to kind of continue this warped world that at this point is very, very outdated. As you mentioned, it really is, you know, because if yeah, again, it's, it's last. These are the it's last days. These are the last days. It's not sustainable. These are the last days of imperialism. These are the last days of capitalism. Um, I really think in our lifetime, we're not young. We are both in our forties, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I really believe that there is a very high high chance that within our lifetimes, we are going to see some drastic, drastic changes for the better in the entire world. I think I think when Africa rises, the entire world will, will be healed. I think when all of the soft sciences that uh, Africa has developed that are so much more advanced than anywhere else, I mean, music and rhythm is just a tiny little part of it. The medicine, the knowledge about uh, politics. Uh, when I was in Uganda, I, I studied a little bit about the uh, local uh, traditional uh, tribal uh, political structures they're fucking amazing it's literal direct democracy it's 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 communism and anarchism rolled into one and it has been working for since forever literally since time immemorial 
And these are societies that are five million members or more, not tiny little little bands or tribes. They're nations. They're like five million, six million people that are uh, connected through direct democracy with a central leadership a little bit, but mostly it's everyone agrees on decisions. And um, it's just amazing stuff. But anyway, so as, as the poor countries become more, more, more strong, um, when the playing field around the entire planet is more even, is, is more equal and more just, right? We're, we are going to see the conditions of socialism um, develop everywhere. We're going to see the conditions of socialism with German characteristics, socialism with English characteristics, socialism with um, Serbian characteristics, socialism with U.S. American so, uh, characteristics, be able to grow and bloom like flowers after the rain. After all of this pain and suffering and war, um, I think I think within our. I mean, I I probably sound like a crazy person. No, no, <laughs> not at all. In fact, you know what's funny is uh, I was going to say is that there's you know, a Palestinian group that's been organizing some of the rallies here in New York, and that's what they're called, you know, W-O-L, which is within our lifetime. So, <laughs> you know, and yeah. that and that is, you know, that's the thing. It's like, again, yeah, we got maybe, you know, a few decades on the planet, hopefully, at least for us. But, yeah, we just keep trying to keep pushing, you know, because the cracks yeah. are showing. And, and obviously, you know, it's like, like everything, you know, they're still in charge and, and, and there's still a lot of horrible shit going on around the world. But, you know, you just have to keep pushing. And I do think it's kind of a, like a house of cards, you know. Uh, I mean, even like if you look at like South African apartheid, I remember uh, I forget who I was talking to after a lecture. It might have been Ali Abdunima, you know, but uh, he, you know, from Electronic Intifada. But like he was basically saying that. He was talking to South African activists back in the day, and they were telling him, like, you know, it's like, you know, we just kept pushing. And, you know, for years and years, who knows if we we thought it would ever, like, fall or whatever. And then it all kind of, like, started to accelerate at a certain point. So it's like... Absolutely, absolutely. like, like, I mean, if you think about it, like, if you're in South Africa in the 70s, you may not think apartheid would have ever fallen. You know, and uh, I feel like even in this latest thing with Gaza, you know, and I've probably been following this issue for 10 or 11 years. So, you know, I definitely people obviously have been following it a lot longer. But I, you know, I remember, you know, just first posting about this online and dealing with so many trolls and so much shit, you know. And I still think people are a little bit afraid to post about this stuff. But and then the 2014 bombings and 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 all that stuff and and I do think it's a little bit different this time. Of course, we have a long long way to go and unfortunately there's going to be more suffering and killing, but I do think people are kind of like slowly waking up and starting to kind of realize that these mainstream media narratives and these governments, yeah, it's like stop trusting them, you know. I I make an yeah. analogy. It's like, you know, the Charlie Brown thing with Lucy with the football and Charlie Brown keeps trying to like kick the football and it's like at a certain point you know she's going to pull it away. Like you know these sources are bullshit. So why yeah. keep trying to yeah. kick the football, but it's 
you know, like I said, I think, you know, the anti-communist programming and that kind of stuff is, is it's deep. I think it's deeper than what people think, you know, and even for people yeah. like for myself growing up in the States, like it took me a long time. I still feel like I'm a rookie communist. I have a, a lot more reading to do and, and doing direct action and kind of like being about it, you know, but it took me a while to even say, like, okay, I'm happy. I'll say I'm a communist because there's just so much stigma stigma with that. And I feel mm -hmm. like even, mm -hmm. let's say, I wanted to get a job in the American government. Like, let's say if on my social media posts that I'm saying I'm a communist or something, you know, that might keep you from getting a job or something. I mean, it's of still course. out there in a big way. But, so, but, I mean, I think people should really just kind of recognize that it's, even beyond, like, labels, it's, it's just more about caring about humanity. You know, I mean, and obviously it's like, you know, the Western, you know, this kind of like Western, like clash of civilizations. And they're obviously the civilized ones. You know, it's like, well, it's not very civilized to, to bomb children or, or, or have sanctions happen so people can't get medicine. Like you have to like look and see not what these people say, but what they do, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I don't know. At some point, maybe we can get past that, you know? But uh, yeah, yeah within our lifetime, I, I definitely think it's a good goal. Just keep pushing, you know, I mean, I, I look at this as sort of a lifetime goal, because even within our lifetime, if things get better, you just you know, these people are going to hold on as long as they can. You know, So there's always yeah. going to be a group of people that is, is happy with the status quo and doesn't want to see it change, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But the big, bigger forces are, are changing um, in a big way and very rapidly. Um, when material conditions change, minds will change. Like when your ass is free, your mind will follow, right? Exactly. When Funkadelic. <laughs> free your mind and your ass will follow always. Exactly. 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 But on a on an even bigger scale, like when the material conditions change, when global trade is restructured, right? When when these poor countries are aligned and the economies start growing uh, as they are already very, very rapidly, the entire globe will change. Like attitudes will follow very, very soon after that. I mean, people have the attention span of goldfish and they're very easily manipulated and into whatever um, by either propaganda and lies or by reality, like what they see and what they touch you know, and, and and the second is so much more powerful. And the first is not sustainable. They can lie to a lot of people for some time, but not forever. Um, so I, I, re I really do think that things are changing. Like if you look at the alliances, I mean, did, did you know that, um, okay, maybe that's not a good example. Um, there's this all all of these alliances through the Asian countries and uh, Iran and and Russia, um, so this forming an anti-imperialist bloc that is uh, yeah, going to because, move away. From yeah, because yeah, I was going to say one of the main yeah one of the main things that how the U.S. kind of controls things is of, as we were talking about economics and why it shouldn't be split with politics and why I feel like sanctions are such a a tool that you know America uses so much is because. It's all about kind of controlling the money and, 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 you know, the World Bank and all that stuff. And course, I think that's petroleum dollar. And I think that's one of the reasons that America is very paranoid about China rising, because if, you know, people can circumvent the sanctions, then they're not going to have the same hold, you know.
yeah, yeah, yeah. On the world, essentially. That's how, that's, I feel like, is one of the main ways they're trying to control the world. I mean, even, like, you know, Syria and, and all these, the seizure sanctions, like, all the awful things in Venezuela, they kind of, like, use these, it's like economic gangsterism. It's economic warfare. But if, if they're not the sort of hegemonic power in the world in terms of money and running the system, then they're not going to be able to have control over these countries that don't bend the knee to them. Exactly, exactly. And the thing is, right now, today, all of the things that Brzezinski, the mastermind of the Cold War, the mastermind of all of these uh, tactics to destabilize and, and uh, destroy socialist countries and, and, and get them to fight each other and all of these devious, like amazing, amazing strategically, um, the, the mastermind, what he warned the things that he warned the U.S. about are all happening today. He warned the U.S. never, ever let Russia become friends with Europe, especially Germany, especially Germany. And yeah, they what were, is happening? They're billing like the gas pipeline, right? The Nord exactly, II or exactly. Something. Yeah, which, they were which trying to still, they were trying to stop is, that, right? They, were, I think, like yeah, the U.S. was trying to sanction Germany, which is like talk about yeah, this. Talk about the snake eating its own tail. You're gonna fucking sanction <laughs> Germany, you dipshits! Oh my god, yeah, you guys are such dipshits, own, man. Their own vassal vassal states, their own client states. Client um, states, yeah. Not not even not even sanctioning uh, only Germany. They were sanctioning a, a tiny little company, the port. The port company that was like the construction company that was building the pipeline. I and mean, it's just like a little company. <laughs> they were sanctioning this little company. Gangster. This is gangster shit. They're just it's just gangster shit. Like that's the whole thing. Like, okay, you wanna watch like Goodfellas like, or the mob <laughs> movies and like them, but no, I don't want to live under people like that. And that's what these people it's are. Like They're fucking gangsters, bro. man. I don't know. It's like beating up your it's like beating up your seven year old little brother and shaking him down for lunch money. <laughs> ridiculous <laughs> ridiculous yeah world. but, but hey, all of these things that brzezinski warned about like never let this happen they're close to happening and never let iran form an alliance with china for example and that's huge right that was one of the biggest things of probably this this decade is the the whatever 600 billion dollar deal between china and iran and and many decades too it wasn't like some 25 year deal or something like that yeah exactly, exactly i mean that's huge so all of these things that brzezinski warned about like never under any circumstances allow these things to happen you must stop these alliances from forming <laughs> and they're all happening one after another yeah yeah so that's what's helpful yeah, I mean there is there is hope, and and the whole thing is someone I forget might have been Margaret Margaret Kimberly or somebody I follow on Twitter, but it was talking about how you have to always kind of be an optimist as an activist yeah. because you know nihilism it, it's sort of like that to me is like an aspect of of privilege like Absolutely. you're you're you 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 can be nihilistic because maybe life isn't so bad for you but you maybe you have yeah. a conscious of the world is fucked up but you're like well fuck it there's no way to fix it and my life is not so bad but like i said like if you're under the gun you know from these countries getting bombed or whatever you don't have time to be nihilistic you're just trying to survive you know so yeah. it's like again for people in the imperial core 
don't be nihilistic fucking you know what i mean like keep pushing forward you know it's it's i just feel like yeah you know well i think i think that has its place as well because the experience of people you know in in these countries is valid as well i mean they have a different experience of the world they're you know coddled and they're pampered and they're but they're also deprived of like the real truth of the world and but but the thing is to 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 contextualize that nihilism and to uh have the antidote to it at the same time like i think radical optimism um can sort of coexist with nihilism like we can interesting that's crazy okay i'm listening we can feel despair we can feel despair for a world that is dying and we can have radical optimism about the world that is coming Uh, the world that is is coming with two-day work weeks for everyone the world that is coming with with plenty of leisure time and resources for people to be creative to to do theater and and um, music and dance and uh, 3d improvised uh, theater with uh, 3d holographic projections um, I don't know so I think whatever you want to come up with really <laughs> yeah absolutely I think they both can exist at the same time we can feel nihilistic uh, and d- despair about this this world that is ending and it is ending and there's a lot of grief involved in that as well because you know um these uh well maybe the west won't be at the the top of the cock anymore you know and and i think right, that's, right. that's something that i think is this the subtle arrogance of the west is that you know it's like even like i said people that might have some awareness of the world and awareness of how fucked up imperialism is but still kind of goes back to that western centricness which is all you know in a sense is almost like a whiteness like why why people don't necessarily want to give up their place even if it you know even if there's plenty yeah. of white people suffering because they're still like well we still have like a little bit of a leg up and there's that kind of arrogance i think with the west you know like you've even talked about that with like just looking at how music is framed like you know with like i was reading an article you were talking about uh Cueto and like you know like sort of south african house and it was like you know, people describing it as slow down U.S. house, you know, it's, it's like yeah. it's sort of taking out all the African influences in it, you know, because it's always kind of like, well, let's compare it to what we know, because it's the West and everything comes from here and blah, 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 you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the um, South African artists w- w- very, you know, uh, they volunteer to go along with that narrative because in their community to drop names like Frankie Knuckles or, you know, uh, whatever, U.S. American house artists is, like, totally cool, right? In their neighborhood, if they say, like, oh, yeah, like, I'm inspired by Frankie Knuckles um, or, like, I'm associated with him even, that's, like, super cool in his community, so. (laughs) Right, right, right. But it is kind of warped because it, it still kind of goes back to that kind of Western arrogance in a way. Yeah, of course. Of course it is. I mean, South, Ar- South African house is not even house music. I mean, right. it depends on your defi- depends on your definition of house music, of course. Um, I mean, the, for me, I always take a formal approach, like the form of it, like the structure of it, like uh, the actual sounds of it. To me, what defines house, formally speaking, is the uns, 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 right? The, f- the four on the floor. Yeah, w- and with, uh, with a hi-hat in between. 
Right, right, right. Right. That's like the the structure of house music. And if you listen to South African house, like very little of it is like it has that pattern. And all of it yeah, is it's like, a little broken. In fact, you you yeah, you were you were saying in the article, and I I didn't really pick up on this, but it makes sense. It's kind of almost like a dembo type pattern. It is. It is. I mean, the dembo comes from the Cuban uh, uh, um, clave, right? Which is which is the most simple uh, of all of the African patterns. The one that survived in through sl- slavery and through the uh, the the the, uh, the drums being taken away, and all of these impoverishing processes of slavery and colonialism in the Caribbean and in Latin America and in North America. So the clave is like the, the three pattern, the dun dun ka dun dun ka, which is like dance hall. Right. But yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so like African patterns. Yeah, definitely. So that's, that's like the, the most basic kind of African drum pattern that survives in the U S or in the Americas. Yeah, you had like a whole sound system. I was watching some of uh, like YouTube videos from I don't know a few years back, but you were performing with uh, live musicians, and were you were you playing like tracks or were you DJing? What was, was it was DJ- a Nagoma sound system, or how do you say that? Ngoma. Uh, yeah, yeah um, Ngoma sound system. It's, it's we haven't played any shows lately, but it was really fun to collaborate with trombonists and uh, percussionists. From from all over the world, really. Um, yeah, yeah, it was really really fun. Yeah, I came to Berlin to to do more music and um, read Marx and and party and uh, formulate my kind of uh, not mine but our collective vision for a 21st century socialism. Yeah, no, yeah. you have like a yeah. you have a lot of oh, different. Really? Go ahead, sorry. It's all totally related, right? I mean, music is a, a, a social dance music is of the working class and it's of the indigenous. It's um, like we are the inheritors of the original spiritual system that enabled Homo sapiens sapiens to evolve into what we are. Let me. Um, hmm? No, go ahead. Okay, so uh, we are the slowest and the weakest of all the apes of the savanna, right, of, uh, of the, the plains of Africa. And the only way that we could have survived is uh, by working together, is by co- collaboration and collectivity. Taking care of the children together, for example, is a hugely important thing because the uh, uh, monkeys or the offspring with big brains need a long time to mature or to be, become self-reliant. If you get a chimpanzee, it needs like six months or three months even, and before it can climb trees and get fruits and it's totally fine. But human children, because of our big brains, we need at least 10 years or 15 years, or in some cases 40, <laughs> to become, <laughs> become self-reliant. Right, and and that's a lot of fucking work for the parents. That's a lot of fucking food and love and care and protection that uh the, that the child needs before you know for ten years or fifteen years. 
That's so much work. And this is only possible through collectivity. And rhythm and dance and music uh, is the original spirituality because it builds community and it builds a sense of trust and it builds love and it builds co cooperation uh, and this tightly knit social uh, social social organization that made it possible for homo sapiens to not only survive but thrive and evolve bigger and bigger brains it was through this collectivity and music and dancing together singing together is at the center of that as, as well as um, I mean sex drugs and rock and roll the original parties were orgiastic of course it was, has everything to do with uh, with uh, libidinous flows it has everything to do with uh, the original earth goddess or whatever um i know it sounds a bit cheesy but no all no of this... no i mean you're kind of just going i mean you know there's a song let's go back way back <laughs> but i mean it is you're going back to the troglodytes cavemen cave women no but i mean you are kind of going back because you have like a good article i forget what it is maybe from uh like 2015 or 16 but you're talking about the history of dance and of course how imperialism and all these kind of things sort of like try to squash it out in local communities and still kind of going on to these, you know, even in, in this age, because you mentioned like the anti-rave laws and of course the cabaret laws that plague New York at a certain time though. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, I was actually DJing in New York quite a bit when that was going on and DJ to clubs that had a no dancing sign because it was like Giul yeah. Giuliani's like night, nightlife task force would come around and write a bunch yeah. of tickets and basically screw up your whole night i mean if you have yeah. like a night pumping at a saturday and it's like 1 30 in the morning you know the bars are open till whatever four here so that's kind of prime time and then yeah you know 20 cops show up and the fire department and the food inspectors because they want to see if your milk is bad i mean you know for your white russians and, and it's like why are you doing yeah. this inspection at 1 30 <laughs> on a saturday because even if and you know they'll comb your whole shit like there was a thing called like an open flame permit so you needed a permit for candles so they <laughs> they check everything they usually come out with at least one ticket you know but even if they See, came that, out with no ticket, well, you had who's going to hang out in a club and you're trying to like yeah. mac on someone and <laughs> there's like cops with flashlights. You leave. So even if they write no ticket, they've cost your club thousands of dollars because people leave, you know, yeah. and yeah. and it's like it's kind of crazy. And like the anti rave laws that were, were kind of going on here and in England, where I think it was like, what was the English thing? They were trying to shut down all those like. Uh, you know, like raves in the middle of the country. So it was like if three people were, were dancing in unison, then, you know, you needed some sort of permit or something. So it's kind of crazy that it goes from, like, classic imperialist shit from centuries ago, but then there's kind of, like, weird versions of it now that still kind of happen to kind of control this. So like the cabaret laws, even though they were resurrected by Giuliani, they go back to 1920s Harlem, again, to keep probably white people from going to jazz clubs or, or clamping down on jazz clubs in Harlem. Yeah. Know? Yeah. 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 I mean, clamping down on social gatherings, right. Without, right. With, without, without, uh, the control of, uh, the commodity, commoditized nightlife sector without capitalists getting rich off of it, basically right. is, uh, has always been forbidden and suppressed. And that's a form of anti-communism as well. Um, even more than the profit 
you know, not being made by uncontrolled parties, you know, uh, people just getting together and, and creating a powerful vibe, um, which is totally democratic, um, is, uh, is scary as fuck to, to the bourgeois power structures. Because uh, on the dance floor, everybody's the same. Yep. And, uh, and people have these ecstatic, euphoric, amazing communal experiences, collective experiences. You're all on the dance floor, 100, 200, 300 people, and you're all feeling the, the, the same rhythm, and you're all dancing together, and you get this elated, like, amazing spiritual sort of high that, uh, that is so powerful. And, and during those moments, you realize that life is not about your fucking stock portfolio. And it's not about checking, you know, your, your, uh, uh, whatever, your property, your intellectual property rights or your lawyer. And uh, you realize that this connection with other people is so, so amazing um, that this, this, these experiences have to be controlled. They have to be um, only allowed during, during a certain very limited uh, hours of, of the night. Like England was the first, right? England. It's no coincidence that England, the first and the biggest colonial power, uh, has like 1 a.m. last call. Like no, no other country in Europe, I'm pretty sure no other country in Europe has a 1 a.m. last call. Only England. And then, of course, because U.S. America is like the scion of England, is the bastard love child of England um, and, and, and the devil, I guess. The <laughs> U.S. America also has, also has uh, I mean, it's just fucking ridiculous. And that shapes the music, right? Yeah, no, it, it actually does. No, it, it does. I mean, New York is kind of an anomaly because it's a little bit later, but a lot of places in the States, it's like 2 a.m. or maybe 3 a.m. You know, right, right. Maybe a little bit more lax now, but for a long, long for the longest time, or or yeah, in other states. So you were you were in California for a while. We were. I mean, you know, actually, we have to just give a shout out to Tommy's Burgers as an aside. <laughs> <laughs> the, nu- yeah, the up, nuclear nuclear uh, ch- chili burger. I don't know what's in that stuff. Probably don't want to know, but uh, definitely some late night. You know, kind of like try to prevent a hangover, or get a Tommy burger on the way home or something, you know. But anyways, yeah. but yeah, we continue, though. But uh, yeah, no, there's it's kind of like they, it, they need to control this shit, you know, it shaped it. And, and it's, what's interesting is that it how it shapes the music, right? English music, grime and uh, jungle, uh, drum and bass, whatever, all from the, of course, uh, Caribbean connection, the uh, Jamaican and uh, Trinidadian immigrants that came to the UK because they were, they were. Uh, but, but also, but also but, influenced but, by but, like but, rave but, culture too. But yeah, it's kind of a but, mix. But, of that. Rave culture all, all came from those Caribbean roots, right? That took took root in England. But but that, that that's a side thing. I, I wanted to say that all of the English music is so intense and claustrophobic, right? Like grime. And jungle, it's just like really super intense because people have only like fucking three hours to party. <laughs> yeah, I mean Berlin. Berlin is crazy. Berlin is nonstop. Exactly, and Berlin, the typical Berlin music is just like this really mellow, like uh, techno that's just like goes on forever. It goes on for days. 
and it's just like totally horizontal and it's totally relaxed L- and people, linear or whatever sometimes but yeah it's good you know yeah i mean there's good and bad in both yeah. but i mean yeah. i'm not saying one is better than the other i'm just saying like it's interesting how the economics and the politics shapes the culture like it shapes literally how the music sounds and the kind of energy that is expressed in the music you know there's one thing that's that's crazy uh uh, I was on, on. I was at this party. DJ was playing uh, the original trap music from the South, like Southern hip hop, right? Right. And um, I grew up. I spent three years of my high school years in Houston, Dallas, um, and and the, 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 this was in Berlin, like just a few years ago. The, the song that the DJ dropped. The rapper was singing something about Houston, something about Dallas. And, and I was standing there on the dance floor and I had this epiphany. During those years, when I was 16, 17, 18, I looked under every rock for the most crazy music out there. For the most in, intense, the most weird, the most strange, the most uh, funky music. And I found Einstein Neubauten from Germany. I found uh, Japanese noise. I found acid house not from Chicago, but from London. Right. Like 808 State and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. And um, and I found hip-hop, which was Beastie Boys. Like me and my friends, we all loved Beastie Boys, right? And at this time, I just – at this moment on the dance floor, like two years ago here in Berlin, I just realized that not a single time during those three years of my life, not a single time a, one person handed me a tape – of the shit that was being made in my own city on the other side of town. Yeah, that's wild. Like I had, that's wild. I had no idea. I had no idea about Texas hip hop. I had no idea. I didn't even know it existed until I fucking moved to Europe. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, not, it, it, it's funny how you kind of come, come across things like that. You're sometimes just looking a certain way, you know. I mean, uh, you know, I was yeah, like, and, and go ahead. Sorry. That's segregated. That's how segregated U.S. society is. Yeah. No, that's true. It's, it's, it's true. insane. It's insane. It's absolutely insane. And you hear it in the music as well, the segregation. You hear how alienated people are, right? And, and you hear, like, this loneliness that's in the music because society is shaped like that. Because it's pushed them to the edge. I mean, literally, probably geographically with redlining and stuff like that, you know? Yeah. I think there absolutely. was a map that was going around that was like mapping different cities based on race. And it's it's really crazy that, you know, especially if you look at Chicago and I mean, many cities and yeah. you kind of see it. It's like redlining is literally a red line. They draw it and it's like, OK, you're black. You live in this part of town and you're white. You live in this part of town. It's. It's really yeah. nuts how that stuff plays out. But again, kind of like, you know, separating economics from politics, that is kind of an interesting thing. That's another thing you don't think about. You know, you think about different musical styles from different parts of the country or different styles of music, but you can't really separate the music from the politics or the economics either. You know, either. obviously. Absolutely. Obviously. Absolutely. Absolutely. And bourgeois culture. That's all for the property owners uh, and this f- fucked up social order that they have constructed and must maintain um, works by dissociating all of these things from each other, like compartmentalizing. Like we never think about 
you know, uh, the the music coming out of our out of the radio with uh, the rise of you know uh, a certain economic uh, structure. You know, like heavy metal was born in the '80s, right? Neoliberal, the rise of neoliberal time um, era, the Reagan and Thatcher era, r- right uh, after the financialization of Wall Street. Right? There's a fucking connection there. Nobody ever thinks about that. In fact, you know, um, Black Sabbath uh, guitar player had lost the finger in the factory where he works. That's crazy. I did not know that. Industrial industrial accident. And so he could only play his guitar with three or, or four fingers. And he, so he could only play like simple chords. And it shaped the sound from his fucking guitar. And, I mean, that's just a very direct thing that connects to capitalism. But, um, you know, after the financialization of Wall Street and this big wave of privatization, all of the uh, uh, thousands and thousands of mom and pop shops went bust. And people lost their jobs. And the um, deindustrialization of, the, of, of Detroit started at, at that time. All the factories closed and all of the steel mills closed down and people lost their jobs. And all these young men were angry and they started making heavy metal, right? Yeah, and even like punk sort of, you know, reacting exactly. to politics and, and hip hop and all that stuff. You know, it's it, there is kind of like, you know, that you can get the anger in the music because, I mean, not that people wouldn't make angry music anyway, but it's just like, yeah, especially if you're getting fucked over. You know, because it's just a fucked up system. You know, it's well, a think, system. It's a system. Know. It's a system that grinds people. There's no safety. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Net. There's no, no safety I, net in this system. You know, absolutely. Yeah, but I don't think people make angry music when they're not angry. If you listen to African music from the 60s, 70s, or or like all African music, like there's very little of it that's really angry. Right. You people live in these these sort of like very connected. Uh, social communities where everybody fucking loves each other and supports each other. Like, there's no alienation. There's no, you know, there's no, there's no anger, angry music, like, or very little of it. I mean, you can say that some of the drumming is very, very sort of intense, uh, uh, or whatever, intense, intense, but it's more of a, it's a sexual kind of way. It's not in a like, I want to kill myself. <laughs> <laughs> Well, maybe that's like kind of like the healthy nihilism you were talking about, because that that is sort of like the punk rock shit is it's sort of like trying to channel the despair in the world or maybe what's going on in your life, you know. And so you're you're absolutely that's a way of channeling that nihilism, I guess, in a way that you were mentioning. before. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we have to realign that nihilism with anti-capitalism. Right. To make all the all these young rebels that, that are so fucking angry, right, that are making these aggressive bass music that is so cold and like fucking mean. Right. And and all these rock and roll guys that are just making like dystopian fucking uh, noisy uh, punk metal, and you know, all of that is discontent with capitalism. All of that is anger and discontent with the social, suffocating social order that makes no sense, that makes, uh, that creates a lot of b- uh, abuse and a lot of loneliness and a lot of fucking anger and depression. Right. So we need to 
so so yeah, I don't know. I don't know exactly what. I mean, um, I think I mean, I think it's like you know, you can have all different kind of styles of music. I mean, these 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 genres kind of like obviously have a life of their own and then people grow up listening to that stuff and then go and make something else, you know? And so there's like an evolution of that, but, but yeah, I mean, I think it's, it is interesting to kind of look at music from that way because like you said, with uh, economics, it's sometimes it's like, it starts to get split apart from just why, where does it come from and why is it, you know, that way? You know, and you're just yeah. kind of looking at something from, okay, this person made this album or, you know, this economic, you know, it's it's sort of like it's uh, disconnected from like the larger picture, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think, yeah, people don't want to almost resist uh, thinking about music in this way because they because because in music they have um, invested all of the emotions that otherwise that have no other outlet. Um, so music becomes almost a sacred thing that they don't want to think about, that people don't want to analyze in a logical, rational kind of way, you know? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Well, like I said, it just kind of like, it's more like looking at it a little more like in a, I guess like not, um, it's a little more like individualistic or kind of close. We're going to look at this album or we're going to look at this, genre yeah. and almost not think about well why is this all kind of like coming up in a way you know and uh yeah. you know and you can have a lot of like you know amazing experiences that can kind of shape you i mean i mean i grew up as kind of like a mod you know skyhead i mean you know one of my first records i bought when i was you know early teenager was like the specials record so you know in a way nice. it kind of like kept it kind of started me being like all right i may not know you know of course being inundated and and all this kind of like propaganda growing up you know it's not like you're gonna say you're a communist or you know even a socialist per se but i knew i was anti-racist because my favorite band had black and white members so why would i be racist you know and it's that's something i've always kind of said that i think is just like if you you know there's you you should not be racist as a dj since a lot of this stuff comes from you know african black yeah. music like even the dj you know culture itself so which it which then stops. leads which Eric then stopped. leads to that you should be anti-imperialist because that is you know sort of what anti-racism is you should be anti-imperialist you know i don't know absolutely absolutely i mean if you if anyone just just goes far enough in any direction or in anything um in music or anything you just go far enough and and you discover and think and you're honest to yourself i think we reach the same conclusion yeah because to me um, it's like it's like again like the stuff that's going on in in palestine at the moment it's like you know if you're really going to believe those idf infographics which are just so god awful <laughs> you know look i mean i know you're a designer too so i mean it's like this shit looks like it's like you know 10 year old photoshop skills which is like my skills <laughs> level on that wait, shit. Wait, but i mean i'm just I'm saying not, like like if you really believe this shit that like oh hamas is hiding bombs in this school and that's why we had to bomb that school and they're killing children it's like you're you're you have a heart of stone. You are soulless if you really believe this shit. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's like, yeah. like how can you be against killing children? I just don't yeah. get it. Fucking adults, man. You know they'll talk themselves into some pretzel 
to justify this shit. It's uh, the yeah, cogn- anything, the cognitive dissonance. You know, they just get into like you said, they get into that bubble and then they believe it all the way, and it's like very. You know, I guess that that's the thing that I feel like is one of the things that. How do we get past? How do you puncture those people that are just deep in the bubble? Like, do you have to just wait till they die? I mean, like, I just like some people. It just seems like they'll just never change. Like, no matter how many facts you put up in front of them or whatever, they're yeah. just yeah, they're not going to change. You know? Yeah, yeah. It's irrational. It's it's ideology. It's um, you know, Burroughs talked about the uh. People that live by the shore of a of 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 an ocean, they would see the ships come in mast first. They would see the mast on the horizon first, and then the rest of the boat would rise up, right? And but they would choose to not believe their own eyes, and go with the Catholic Church version, which is that the Earth is flat. Right. Right. Right, so it's, it's just ideology. It, it 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 blinds people. It makes people not believe their own eyes and go with something that's completely illogical. I mean, you were talking about music and racism. Eric Clapton. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> he plays fucking blues. Oh my god! Well, what was that one concert where he was like, he's he's had some moments. That dude. Too, I, yeah. I, I, I definitely too much cocaine for that guy for sure. But uh, yeah, um, but yeah, what was it? Wasn't he like chewing out? He went on some like anti-immigrant rant at some concert. Yeah. And, yeah, was yeah, that yeah, the '90s yeah. or eight? I don't remember. But yeah, he, he's he, he's got some uh, he's got some classic moments like fuck Eric Clapton. I mean, come on. I mean, I, I guess like the early Cream shit or whatever. Like, I'm not saying he's a bad guitarist, but. You yeah, know, but it's kind of cra- again. And if you want to talk about like Western arrogance too, it's like these are the people that are sort of like thrown out there, like you know the greatest guitarist of all time. It's like, come on, dude, <laughs> come on. This guy's like a bigot, <laughs> man. <laughs> totally, totally. It's it's ridiculous. Making cocaine I'm, rock, I'm, you know. <laughs> I was talking to my girlfriend about uh, how Nazis have always liked uh, black music. Right, and I was say, saying that it doesn't fucking make sense. Oh, what what sparked this was um, we were watching this World War Two movie, one of these very serious German like historical, you know, uh, movies that is everything's very realistic and very very serious, and like during a a ball, uh, a party for the SS elite members with their with their families, they were uh, dancing, and all of a sudden I realized that the music that they were playing in this movie. Was the peanut vendors, the original uh, 1930s, 31, 32 Cuban rumba? Right, right. That was, that was like uh, one of the first exports around the world of uh, African American, Afro Caribbean uh, music, and and all these like song after song. It wasn't just one song. It was like song after song in the background when these were these elite. Uh, SS officers are spinning around the ballroom were original 30s rumba from Cuba. And I was like, what the fuck? How can this be? Like, this, is, <laughs> this is not a coincidence. So I Googled and I did a little bit of rudimentary research and of course came up a uh, compilation called music, called Dance Music of the Third Reich. I think that F- WFMU, the station, they, they I think they might have even... Uh reference that in a blog post or something and really? i feel really? like All i've right. heard of that record 
but it was all yeah, like yeah. swing stuff, right? And stuff or Yeah, it was mostly swing, but of course there was like one or two rumba. Like the name was like something something rumba. So like yeah, I, I, Nazis have never had a problem with enjoying uh black music and hating black people. And I was saying to my girlfriend like this makes like how is this possible? This is like completely crazy. And she was like it's not that crazy if you think about that everything they believe makes no sense. That like not a single right. thing they believe, <laughs> like not a single thing they believe makes any fucking sense. And so of course this is possible. Anything is possible when your entire ideology is a complete lie. Yeah, and you just warp everything around it, essentially. You know? Yeah. And justify it, you know, because you could say the same thing in sports, that probably a lot of those NFL owners that are voting for Trump probably are not huge fans of black people. But, they're, you know, in a way, it's almost like some gladiator shit. They're they're happy to, uh, you know, have those black people or whoever is playing in the sports perform and they make money, you know, yeah. and pretend, you know, and in a way you have to kind of, you know, now with. You know, you have to put on a gloss to say, oh, I'm not racist and blah, 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 though. Of course, who was that guy with the Clippers or something? <laughs> you know, I don't even follow sports, <laughs> but I mean, the owner of the Clippers basically saying the N-word and all this stuff. And it's like, dude, you own a basketball <laughs> team. What the fuck? But it's a kind of the same thing. Like, where is the logic in that? If you're really racist, why do you own a basketball team? But it's capitalism. It's like, hey, I'm making money off these guys. So whatever. Yeah. You know? <laughs> So, I mean, I feel like there's always kind of some weird justification for that stuff. But, of course, when you lay it out like that, of course it makes no sense because, you are you know, you're racist. You you hate these people. Why are you listening to their music, you know? Yeah. And, and that kind of goes back to me. Like, I know there's racist DJs, too. So it's like, why are you a DJ if you're a bigot, you know? It's like, what what course. is the music you're playing, you know? I mean, even if yeah. you're playing, like, white artists, where where does the music come from? Like, even if you're playing, yeah. like, you know, sort of like whatever, Berlin techno or whatever, it's like, well, where do you think the roots of this shit comes from? It's like, you know, which is it's funny because I think, like, now there's more and more, like, you know, awareness that, like, techno, is, you know, is from Detroit and all this stuff. But I especially think, like, in the 90s, you know, especially as it was coming up more and more and, and Europe got bigger, that that wasn't always, like, known. And, and, and even, like, yeah. if you look at, like, those... You know, like the kind of mainstream DJ uh, magazines when they have like top 100 DJs and it's like almost all kind of like white. D so it's almost like there is sometimes this kind of like way even within dance music that they start to kind of like uh, gentrify it in a way. And of course. You, and you start course. to kind of like, you know, forget the roots, which I think some of it is on purpose. You know, they're like, OK, great. This of stuff's course. big enough. We couldn't stop it with our rave laws so now we're just going to co-opt it and pretend that we came up with it and all the biggest names are our people and not their people you know of course of course um the the widest music genre of uh the last s s several decades is probably goth right but if you look at uh, joy division played a version of african-american dance music it's a uh, Joy Division um, is a, a disco band. Basically, they play a depressing version of disco. And if you look at Bauhaus, like 
they're, yeah, they're it's almost, I guess, I they're, guess in a way it's like disco or not disco. Or yeah, Bauhaus is kind of like a sort of post-punk dub band in a way. You know? Yeah, dub, pop, reggae. Yeah, heavy, heavy influence by heavy. dub reggae. Yeah. The, the, the song Bella Lugosi is dead. Listen to the... Oh, no, I used, uh, to, ha- I used to bump... I'm not a mad goth fan, but of course I had that 12-inch. I mean, it's complete, yeah, 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 it's complete yeah. dub. It's complete totally, dub. Totally, but the, totally, total dub. And the percussion is like Afro-Cuban percussion. Yeah, that's true. But That's true. But... um. But the, these people, the musicians themselves, often give credit. But the journalists, of course, just completely uh, do a, do something else with it. And techno, right? The the narrative of techno is that it arose from the tabula rasa of the ruins of uh, post-war Berlin, where uh, a new era of electronic music arises with no roots. With no precedence. You kind of sounded no... like you were narrating some sort of techno special. It arose... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you kind of got your like announcer voice. It arose from the ashes of the wall falling. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And there were many, many made like that. Completely, uh, you know, erasing the Detroit, Chicago house. Yeah. And exactly. like Motown and Motown and Soul, you know, all those, all four of members of. Kraftwerk grew up in Dusseldorf, right? And Dusseldorf was one of the cities where, where a lot of GIs hung out after the war. And the, the, the American GIs had their nightclubs. And all four of these guys in Kraftwerk grew up in their high school years and early 20s or whatever, university years, every weekend going to these GI clubs and listening to soul, funk, uh, you know all these uh, African American. Yeah, what well, was bumping, music. bumping at the time in the sixties? Exactly, I guess. exactly. And they specifically said, right? They specifically said, we don't want our music to sound like African American music. But why did they say that? Why did they not say we don't want our music to sound like Tibetan, you know, Tibetan chants? Like it's precisely because they were making a version of African American dance music. Except in a different way. Yeah, they, stripped, they, very... they stripped it, you know, stripped it down in a way. Yeah, yeah, and use electronics, and I, I love them. I think they're fucking amazing. But like the roots of the craft uh, work is, of course, is still in the African American tradition. Right. And but, but when you talk about this, people get fucking riled up. <laughs> people get, <laughs> people get like, people get fucking. <laughs> Don't talk to me about craft uh, work. I'm German, son. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. People can go red in the face. Like, oh man, I was talking about this stuff, but David Toop was also talking about this stuff, and I only found out like um, random or uh, later that he was doing a series of uh, lectures on um, Kraftwerk and and the rise of techno in in Germany, and how is how the uh, African American influences uh, roots have been systematically erased by journalism. But anyway, yeah, it's we've been of, going for a long time. I know right? we have been going for a long time. I was just going to say, um, we, we can, <laughs> we can, we can, uh, we can, uh, shelve it, you know, but, uh, it's been a, it's been an absolute fabulous conversation. I know we haven't talked too much about your stuff, but you delve into a lot of different styles. I mean, I'll put a link up. Um, you have a bunch of mixes and in, in, in a variety of styles on your SoundCloud page. And, uh, Cool. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a lot. Love for having me on. You've been listening to Small Changes, Stark Reality 
on jasoncharles.net. jasoncharles.net. Deep talk, deep sounds. That was so deep.